We are the School of Canine Science and this is Scent for Six. This week we'll introduce our target odour to the dogs, but as always I'm going to give you three different methods and discuss the pros and cons of each. The first is using the scent containment Experienced device. Experienced bloodhounds had a success rate of 96% with no false indications. This is ludicrously high and yet German Shepherds, Labradors, Spaniels and Collies remain the dog of choice for scent work. So why is that? Perhaps it's not just about genetics and hardware, what about the so trends in order in to be perceived as scent, the odour molecule must be dissolvable. Why? Because when it lands on the mucous membrane of the epithelium covering those turbinates, it needs to be dissolved at this stage for the cilia to pick up the signal and carry The benefit on. of increasing the dog's sniffing frequency through this exercise isn't solely to improve their detection fitness, but more importantly, allows them the opportunity to practice. Errors in handling creating false indication, but here's the thing. In 2014, a group of scientists got together to have a look at the impact of stress on the performance of explosive detection dogs. The first thing the researchers did was... I wish toxicity was that simple, but it's just not black and white like people think it is. Ultimately, everything is toxic. If you want to understand this properly, we need to start with the fundamental concept of LD50, the median lethal dose. To learn more about this one-of-a-kind olfaction course, check out caninescience.online or click the link in the show notes for a 20% discount. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Canine's Talking Sense. Before I get started, I want to give a huge thank you and shout out to Scott and Caitlin Tarpley. They are the ones responsible for creating the new Canines Talking Sense logo that you guys have seen now for a few months. They did an amazing job. Kate knocked it out of the park. She did that within a few hours. Those of you that are interested, she has her company, Fitzgerald Design Incorporated. You can reach out to her at Kate, C-A-I-T dot Fitzgerald, F-I-T-Z-G-E-R-A-L-D-I-N-C at Verizon.net. I will put that email address in the show notes. They also own Next Level Kennels. So I will put their website in the show notes, but before I got too far into the show, I wanted to truly thank them for an amazing logo the feedback everybody has given about this has been amazing. So, again, thank you guys for, for doing that. And I hope uh, some other people find you because you guys put out some great work. So, with that said, this episode that I'm going to do came from an interview I did at the CNCA conference uh, in Palm Springs back last month. I have other episodes that I've actually recorded prior to my trip to uh, Palm Springs, but this year I'm doing a theme where I'm going to spend some time focusing on a uh, part of our dog world in detection specifically, but it also applies to 
other working dogs, which is puppy raising and selecting. How do we go about selecting a good puppy as well as how do we raise that puppy to eventually find its way into the working world? And there's been great debates about that. Um, people feel it would be too costly to do so. Um, you'd have to charge an enormous amount of money if you were going to sell a dog like this. Um, and then all the risks versus rewards in a litter and so forth. So um, this interview I'm doing with Pat Nolan is going to discuss some of the raising and rearing techniques. I have another episode coming up with Tim Baird of 5B Kennels, and we will talk about uh, the same process uh, and what he does. We have to understand that we can no longer just live off of what we get imported to us. We have to do better at raising our own dogs through either the proper breeding, uh, we also have to raise them properly, and just because what comes out of a litter, of course, we understand and know not all of those dogs will be working dogs, but it doesn't mean they don't have functions. And again, if this system was so flawed, why does it work so well across the Atlantic, but yet we struggle to do it here? So we'll get into that on this episode, as well as I wanted to touch on a topic uh, that's come up from time to time. Uh, as people know, I am a proponent and I advocate using markers in detection work. And from time to time, there will be a survey, or a survey, but a study that was uh, referenced in regards to clicker training, is it the most effective way to train dogs? And in that research, uh, it was basically discovered that whether you're using a clicker or a verbal marker or a visual cue, there wasn't any significant difference. In fact, between the clicker and the verbal marker with the 52 dogs or 51 dogs that they tested in this research, there was little to no difference between the verbal marker and the clicker. Now, what is unique is the visual cue by the trainer or handler. And one of the things that comes up in the detection dog community, whether it be sport or uh, professional, is that, oh, I read that survey. It said there was no benefits in marker training. And they people who have used this survey aren't are only using a part of it that matches what they believe. And like I said, the survey clearly states that the clicker and the verbal marker basically had uh, little to no difference in the outcome. And that also in the absence of the audible marker, the visual one, body language, was effective. And what I want people to understand is, one, this research was done in relation to a trained task um, as opposed to detection. And yes, the marker, whether it be audible or visual, because we all know the dogs are reading our body language and looking to us for information, when you do a task, if 
the task is complete and you're reaching your pocket or you do whatever and the dog's looking at you and staring at you or does whatever, we don't care as much. However, detection is very different. Detection, I want my dog's focus on searching. I want my dog's focus to be where odor is coming from once they locate it. So a visual marker becomes an issue at that point, at least how I view it. I don't want my dog spending time looking to me for information or looking to me for a tell as to when I might be getting reward ready. So the audible marker, i.e. clicker or verbal, is far more effective in teaching the task I want, which is search for odor, locate odor, indicate odor, wait for my signal, the audible signal, whether it be a word or a clicker. I typically use a word most often. And when that happens, the dog is then able to get rewarded. So the survey that you'll hear about uh, that gets brought up from time to time is in reference to that. Again, don't get it confused with the fact that they're saying a marker is not valuable. If you read the actual survey or the research that was done, it was done so looking at audible clicker, audible word, and visual body language. All of those are a form of a marker. And the research looked at basically no difference in how the dogs performed between clicker and verbal. And then uh, in the absence of an audible marker, the visual marker was just as effective. So don't take the information of, oh, they said markers aren't effective. Markers are effective. And I'd rather people have a marker that you control versus a marker that you don't control. Because no matter what, we all know our dogs are amazing at reading our body language and will use our body language as markers or cues to when they might get reward. If you don't believe it, just reach your hand into your food pouch or your pocket or wherever you have your reward and see what they do. So I just wanted to take a minute or so to cover that so that way uh, everybody who might hear about that survey or has heard about that survey actually have a understanding about what it was and what it did. So without any further delay, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. It is a great episode. Pat is a wealth of knowledge. And those of you that can see the theme of this month, it is the month of Pat. Last uh, episode was uh, Pat Stewart, and then this episode is Pat Nolan. So both great episodes. I hope everybody enjoys it. And again, uh, please feel free to reach out to me at any point in time. Uh, I always try to answer questions. Um, you can do so at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K, the number nine, dot com. Cameron at Ford, K, nine, dot com. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Canines Talking Sense out here in Palm Springs, California at the CNCA conference. I have yet another guest, but I saved best for last. This is a person who I have followed for a lot of years. Uh, we have probably seen each other's names here and there, but we've never really ever got to sit down and talk to each other. 
and I actually got to sit in on his lecture today, and he sat in on mine yesterday, and I had to laugh because we had so many of the same kind of slides and information, and we have never seen each other. So the mutual respect and the understanding and how things have gone, this is a great chance for me to be able to sit down and interview Mr. Pat Nolan. Pat, welcome to the show. Hey, Cameron. So for the few out there who may have not have heard of you or know your background, you know, you've been involved in, in bird dogs and, and retrieve world, pet world, detection world, special operations. But tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how we got to where you're at today. Well, thanks for having me first. And, uh, and I did enjoy your class. And yeah. uh, it was great fun. <laughs> it was same with yours. I, I, it, was, it was really nice to see that. We're teaching the same kind of things, and we don't even know each other, but we mean you joke around science and science. Yeah. I first started training dogs in 1975 in Denver, Colorado. I got out of the Army, and I was missing a dog. I wanted to have a dog, and I was petting a dog. We were visiting some folks, and they said, oh, you like dogs? Go talk to Gary upstairs. He's starting a guard dog company. So I went and talked to Gary, and uh, I started training dogs the next day. I was... An agitator, we called him at the time. Yep. I was getting bit and learning about dog training and uh, had a good time, learned a lot. It was fun, exciting. I left the company about three or four months later and moved to Hawaii for a bit. And when I came back from Hawaii, they gave me a dog. I was coming through Colorado, they gave me a dog. And uh, I fell in love with it. I mean, I, I really chased seminars, chased information, trained dogs. I started in interest into Schutzhund sport mm-hmm. and I quickly saw that that was primarily a sport there wasn't I didn't see a way that I could earn a living there sure I was trying to figure out how I could get paid to train dogs because I didn't want a job and <laughs> yeah no I, I know the feeling <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up in retriever sports okay I was at a seminar uh, Bill Keeler seminar in Allentown Pennsylvania and Met a fellow, Mike Jones. He's a good friend to this day. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to field trials and retrievers. And, you know, you did that. How many years did you, were you doing the field trial and retriever, you know, part of the dog world? Let's see. Uh, I think I started training retrievers in 1980. Okay. And I believe I stopped running competitions in 2000 okay but i continued to train retrievers until about five years ago okay and now i still train with my wife i help my wife with her dogs <laughs> uh-huh. she's a competitive obedience instructor and a competitive retriever field trial amateur so and, and it's a that diverse background with dogs from all types of backgrounds obviously plays a role in many of the things that we do when we get into detection aspect. You know, the lessons we've learned in your side of it, the field work uh, and obedience and things like that play a significant role. How did you end up finding your way to the detection dog world? How did that happen? I have always I enjoyed reading. I used to read a lot. I don't read as much as I used to, but I still read and I uh, study. And I think it was in 78 or 79, uh, I was reading a book by Michael Fox, the veterinarian. Okay. And I had a litter of German Shepherd puppies at the time. They were three weeks old, I think. 
And in the book, he was talking about the critical periods in the development of puppies. And the, the general consensus was that the cognitive part of the brain didn't turn on until 18 or 20 days. Mm-hmm. He said that there was learning going on before that, though, that in this deep-seated lizard part of the brain. The puppies would learn their mother's odor very early. And the way he proved that was he took anise oil mm-hmm. and he put it on Q-tips. And you would touch the anise oil to a puppy, an untrained puppy, and they would recoil. Mm-hmm. And he did it on enough puppies that he was satisfied that the natural reaction of a puppy to anise was to recoil, move away from it. He took the anise then and wiped it on the breast of, of mothers mm-hmm. and the nursing puppies would smell it when they were nursing. Then he tested before they were 19 days old and those puppies, when they smelled the anise, they rooted forward, they drove into it. Mm. And I thought, well, heck, if they could... So he was proving that even though the cognitive part of the brain was not turned on yet that's still generally accepted sure there was learning happening at the in the lizard brain and mm-hmm. the particular learning was this pairing bonding with the odor and i thought then that if if a dog can learn his mother smells if the dog could learn the anise smell there was no reason that the puppy couldn't learn any other smell sure and I didn't have a litter that was whelping at the time, but I did have a litter of puppies that were 21 days old. So I started associating target odor with food. And in two weeks or so, the puppies at five weeks old knew an odor. I used raspberry leaves, dried raspberry <laughs> leaves. <laughs> yeah, and that's unique, And but you got to see a connection happening at that age correct oh yes the, the reason i chose raspberry i was walking around in a health food store and i was looking trying to think of some odor to use i didn't have permits didn't want permits sure. didn't want to handle anything illegally so i uh dried raspberries i knew they weren't going to encounter it in my home yeah except where i could control that sure and they learned the odor and at at five weeks you could walk into the room they're sound asleep with dried raspberries and they would wake up wow whoa whining excited for dinner so when you made that association did you use like a special bowl that had a place we could put the odor and the food is that how you did it i took a plastic bowl Uh that has a skirt around it okay cheap plastic bowls with a skirt i drilled holes in the outside of the skirt okay and then I packed the raspberry leaves around the food bowl. So now when the puppies approached, they would smell odor before they would get to the food. I love it because that exact example hits on something that we both talk about. I talked about specifically in my uh, lecture yesterday, which is the combination of what is the better way of learning, reward that leads to odor or odor that leads to reward. In your setup, created odor that led to the food not the bowl that had food first and then odor in the center and because as you point out the first thing they would come across is the food first and just happen to have odor there versus this was the target odor leading them to the food so and and you said what age were these puppies 
I started at three weeks. When I started wow. supplementing, they were three weeks old, and I always start supplementing my puppies at three weeks, unless there's some drastic thing with the mother. Um, sure. Otherwise, I wait till they're three weeks old, and I begin to supplement. So then every meal that I was supplementing, they, they were smelling target odor. And I was eating a lot of yogurt at the time. I had plastic <laughs> yogurt tubs. So when they recognized odor, I started putting yogurt or putting the raspberry leaves into yogurt tubs and hiding them around. And they would find them, and then I'd pay them when they found the odor. So. Keep it simple, stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> the And as you progressed down this path of working with these young dogs and, and associating the odor to them at that stage through that method, what are some of the other ways that you did the odor association to the puppies? Um, you know, you and I talked earlier about it, but share it with some of the listeners, one of the other techniques that you've done. Well, I... I took a bit of a hiatus there. I did some odor work with adult dogs, and then I, for a number of years, maybe 15 or more, I did training, early training with Labradors, teaching them directionals early, Mm -hmm. and was amazed that they could learn adult concepts at a very early age. And uh, sometime around... uh, It's a guess, I forget. I started imprinting my Labrador litters with odor. I was experimenting with odors. So I started imprinting from birth then. And I would wipe the mother's breast or around the nipples, Mm -hmm. not on Mm -hmm. the nipples, but with target odors or pseudos. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the puppies were three weeks old, then I would start supplementing with food. But in addition to wiping the breast, there's two different things I did. One, I... I've read that there's a period, it's like 24 hours into early exposure, when rat puppies uh, imprint on their nest odor, and they can tell their nest from a different one. Mm -hmm. So it may have been wrong, but I tried and I guessed that if I blow odor into the whelping box for the first 24 hours, that I'm hoping they will imprint on that. And then I wipe the mother's breast down. In addition to that, and then I, when I was doing the early neurological stimulation, mm-hmm. I would, I would, as I would, these little stressors we'd put on the pups, when they would, after each little stress, I would nuzzle the, the puppy in a rag or a towel mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. soaked in target odor, so that in this released, calming, you put stress on an animal, heart goes up, blood pressure goes up. Then when the stress goes away, ah, there's this relaxation. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to pair the target odor with that relaxation feeling. And what did you see in these dogs that you raised that way when they finally got to a level of basically that starting to being used in training and working and being put on odor, the typical uh, ways what was the difference in the dogs that you raised that way, comparatively speaking, to a dog that you started at, say, 10 months old to a year old? Well, I didn't. I think they call it longitudinal studies. <laughs> okay. I didn't do longitudinal studies. Mm-hmm. I, I imprinted the pups. The puppies that I kept, I trained for detection work and field work. And I sold all my puppies because mm-hmm. I had a market for them. Sure. And I can't, I don't think. 
as a general rule, puppies are best raised in the kennel. Oh, yeah. So I want them to go to a home at seven or eight weeks. Mm-hmm. It's legal at eight weeks. Some people like them at seven weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that my personal experience, that the dogs that you do the early puppy training with, their brain is different. They turn on. They act different. They learn different. And they're much smarter for solving problems. And I believe they're much better at detection work. Now, Alan Goldblatt did a study. He's a scientist from Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did a study, and I can find it somewhere. I have it on my computer. Okay. They took rat puppies Uh at the very early age, and they imprinted them. And after the imprinting, they kind of trained until they got target odor recognition. Then they stopped. They let those puppies grow up. Then they took the control group of pup rats mm-hmm. and this experimental group of rats, and they trained them both to target rec- odor recognition on the odor that the first group had been imprinted on. Mm-hmm. When they brought them out at a year to test them, the pups that had been imprinted, they didn't recognize the odor. Mm. So they had been imprinted early, Okay. then no training at all. Mm-hmm. They didn't recognize the odor. But when they started training, those pups with the early exposure all got target or all or a very high percentage of them acquired target odor recognition before the others. Okay. So it made a lasting change somehow in the brain structure of the animal. They, they may not have remembered it on, like you said, that first exposure, but obviously it planted a seed in a way. Yes. So that way they were able to be more proficient when the formal education of detection came in. When it started, they learned it faster. Okay. They have done studies with humans, mm-hmm. uh, odors on a mother's breast, mm-hmm. that the children prefer to play with toys that smell like the odor <laughs> that they were imprinted on wow. when they were nursing. Wow. Um, so it does make long-term changes. And I find that fascinating, and I'm sure many of our other listeners find that fascinating. As you know, because there's an argument that's out there many times, and I know you've heard of it, is where people will say, just because you can doesn't mean you should. What would you say that are potential downsides to doing odor association or even odor training too young? Because there's there's a distinct difference, at least to me and to others, of course, between odor association and odor training. Yes. And so kind of cover that a little bit, what's the pros and cons, but why there is very distinct differences in the two. Well, I, for a long time, I only did imprinting until there was, you know, starting from three or starting from birth until seven weeks. And then I would start odor training at seven weeks when I would want them to seek target odor for reward. I wouldn't start that till they were seven weeks old. Mm-hmm. Then I woke up one day and realized that I was being intellectually lazy or, <laughs> or uncur- incurious and that there was no reason, if they could recognize target odor, there was no reason not to start training on target odors before seven weeks. And I began to train and test puppies. I developed a box actually I saw a picture of a test that was used for rats and I developed a box with different tunnels that came out of it and I put distractions in one target odor and the other kind of thing and that set the puppies down in the box and 
after they were imprinted, the puppies would have to go through the tunnel to get out the target odor one to get fed. Mm. And I, I didn't mean that we didn't feed them if they didn't get the odor, but yeah. but I tested them and we we tried to control things. I would rotate the box so the target odor was in a different spot, different direction each day. Like maybe they were always going south, and, mm-hmm. you know. So I rotate the box, and then I'd rotate the direction I'd put the puppies, and I would I recorded how often they'd find the right odor, and the one or two of the puppies in the litter were worse than chance on selecting the right one. <laughs> so I couldn't figure it out. Like how can you be worse than chance? Sure. Several of the puppies were in the percentage of 80 to 90 percent choice correct okay. choice and and i'm mean like three and a half to four weeks old they can barely walk well they can walk well it's been yeah, a while since it, i litter they're just learning <laughs> yeah 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 and they're making the correct choice of target odor now not passive imprinting like imprinting when they nurse or imprinting when they eat but they're actively seeking target odor and the some couple were in the 80 to 90 percent correct. Couple were in the 70s, and one or two were, as I remember, were less than less than chance. Uh, several of the dogs that scored very high went on to projects, and they did well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I would, if you can test a puppy that early, yeah. If some test better than others, now that doesn't mean the ones that don't do as well aren't going to make detection dogs. Sure, but if I was going to train detection dogs i want from the ones that tested the best and that didn't answer your question about downsides here's one big downside i okay. believe okay well that's a five minute answer that didn't answer your question <laughs> no, <that's fine. laughs> there was still a lot of good information shared there so go on now i'll try to answer your question very short answer the downside if i imprint explosives one explosive maybe mm-hmm. or multiples but i might do one odor Train on that, then add other odors. That's the way I would do it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you imprint on one odor, you can develop that and develop the, all the skills of seeking Correct. target odor and stuff. If I imprint on explosives and I raise my puppies up and they're a year old and I get calls for three currency dogs, one <laughs> memory chip dog, and two narcotics dogs. Yeah. Now I have a litter of explosive imprint dogs yeah. that I can't or shouldn't or don't want to switch odors. No, yeah. And I yeah. don't have odors, I don't have dogs to fill the others. Yeah. So the big downside is you have to know in advance where they're going. And that's an excellent point. I'm actually going through that myself right now. So, you know, what I'm trying to show the industry, and we'll talk about this a bit more, um, we need to become better about being self reliant on our canine needs. Um, we don't always have to get the dogs from Europe. Um, they have great programs over there. But we also here in the States have good genetics of dogs. We have great people with knowledge. We just lack a process. And kind of what we're talking about here is a process that helps us develop dogs from that puppyhood to that young adult stage where we'll start training them. Uh, but as I go through this and try to prove it works, as I have that puppy, my dilemma always is, oh, what do I train this odor on? Because 
I have to know where it might go. So what's my biggest needs? Am I, uh, is it a drug dog? Is it a bomb dog? So you're right. There has to be that planning and forethought there uh, to know what direction you're going to go. And I could obviously see with a litter, it's not like you can do easily multiple odors. Like so two pups in this litter are bomb dogs. Two other ones are drug dogs because, you, like you said, the setup is they're all near the mother. You can't do, you know. So you ha- the once you commit to that odor for that litter, that's what they are. Um, so definitely that would be something to consider as a, as a downside potentially. There's some discussion of – I've heard some discussion that maybe you could imprint on a unique odor that is custom-made for – a standard, and then you could train on that odor that's not naturally occurring in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not a narcotic. It's not an explosive. Mm-hmm. It's not associated with anything else. It's a very unique formula that the animal's not going to encounter anywhere else. And you could do the training on that. Mm-hmm. Then you could later on, the dog has been trained, it's been developed, developed first, yeah. and then trained. Mm-hmm. And then you could just put the odor on it that you're going to work. And, and it's tough because I, I totally agree with that. And then I think to myself, but what a waste of that odor. In that sense, that's, it's the most powerful one that's going to be in that dog's brain. Why would I, wouldn't, why would I waste that uh, opportunity on uh, anything other than the target odor I eventually want? But, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a method to show, okay, this litter or this pups can do – they know how to use their nose and go through things and, and – the world adversities of, you know, like you said, the tunnel or whatever to get to odor. And, and you can see that with a non-target odor that we'll never encounter later on in life. But then that powerful association that you have at those young ages, I'd, yeah, exactly. I'd rather have that on my target odor. So I'd rather, and you're right. It, 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 and that's just honestly a matter of planning. And um, depending on what your potential customers are, or if you're a business that, uh, has a diverse clientele, then you're right. You're going to have to plan. And and we all know, we've been around this long enough, whenever there's a uh, terrorist incident around the world, everybody's calling for bomb dogs. And then there's never enough on hand. And then every vendor or whatever is kicking themselves for not having enough bomb, dog on hand, uh, bomb dogs on hand. However, you can't just have a bunch of bomb dogs on hand because there's not always a bunch of clients ready to, to get them. So it, it, it's, you know, with planning, I think it could work. What I what I do like uh, that you bring up is it's a process, and this process is important, and it can show us we can be successful uh, in raising young dogs. So in that kind of conversation, uh, a lot of people bring up, well, what do we do? Because what I found unique was, like you said, there was uh, a percentage of those pups that were less than chance. Was there a reason why you saw? Could you could you put your finger on why you saw that? I had no idea. I was just videoing and recording what was happening. I had no explanation for it. I didn't track them again. No longitudinal mm-hmm. study except the couple that went into work, and and they did well at their jobs. Okay. I will say that in addition to the the odor work, I use uh, with the puppies that I'm raising. I don't really do a lot of training other than odor until they're seven weeks old. Mm-hmm. Maybe some's a little selfish. I don't want to put a lot of time in somebody else's pup. Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I'm observing. Now, I do put a tremendous amount of time. That, that doesn't sound right. 
I put my pups out in physical challenges. I hide the food in the yard. They have to find the food pan sometimes. They have to climb over obstacles to get to their mother. They have to climb through here and there. And so I develop, I tried to develop exploration, exploratory behavior, trying to teach them to go out and search and find. And, you know, I do a lot to develop and to expose them environmentally. I imprint odors on them. When they're seven weeks old, I take my puppy and then I start daily training with my puppy. And I do four or five little sessions a day. And uh, they learn, again, they can learn advanced concepts. Mm -hmm. It turns on the brain. And there's a lot of research that shows that early exposure, early experience builds out the physical structure of the brain different than the animal. And it it builds, I forget all the terminology, but... uh, they, it builds a structure and a framework that then fills out with the experience later on. And, and the reverse of that, in these developmental periods, once at a certain point, the brain starts to shut down areas that aren't needed. And if you take a puppy, if there's some accidents, you know, I'm not suggesting we do this, of course. <laughs> and if the puppy's eye is patched at an early age, and maybe as early as when his eyes are opening, one eye opens, the other doesn't. Some period later, a couple of weeks later, you take the patch off and the puppy's blind in that eye mm-hmm. because his brain did not get signals. Yep. And so then it says, we don't need to use that information. There's nothing there for us. Mm-hmm. It starts shutting down the receptors. Now, uh, I believe that happens to other exposures. Now, certainly you can get, we can train good dogs from animals that were never stimulated, trained, and exposed as puppies because it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're as good as they could have been. Uh, For an example, if we think of Clarence Poffenberger's book, The New Knowledge of Dog Behavior, and if you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book. You ought to read it. He went to Bar Harbor where they were doing the studies. Um, Scott and Fuller did the studies there where we came up with the critical periods. They came up with, that's where we get it from them. Okay. And Clarence Poffenberger took that information about the critical periods and he dovetailed it into the Guide Dogs for the Blind in San Rafael. All right. And I forget the exact numbers. It's been a long time since I read the book. But I think their success rate was somewhere around 15 or 18% mm-hmm. of their puppies. They imp- took that information and plugged it in, and their success rate up went up to 70, 80, maybe 90%. So, yeah, that's huge. Huge difference. I mean, incredible. Now, what did they do? They started a couple things. They never raised two puppies from the same litter in a home. They'd stopped that. They'd done that a few times, and it, it never worked out. One would never, both of those pups would work out for them. Um, they couldn't raise two litters together in a home. Second, they couldn't leave puppies in the kennel beyond 12 weeks. They wouldn't, mm-hmm. they just, they didn't work out. Mm-hmm. I think he said they would not accept responsibility for the person. Then they instituted, I believe it was two one half hour periods of intense socialization every week from seven to 12 weeks. Ah. So seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, six weeks. One hour a week of intense socialization. That's six hours invested. Mm-hmm. And their success rate went, again, look, we'll have to read the book. Sure. From eight or 
you know, 18-something into the 80s and 90s. Yeah. If you don't socialize that six hours, you could spend six hours a week the rest of his life, and you can't overcome the deficiency. That's huge. Now, we've all seen pups that have not been socialized. Mm-hmm. I think many of the dogs were working, and, and this is a bad analogy, but they're not socialized to work. I agree. So we're seeing the stunted dog, even as good as they are, they're not as good as they could have been if we had invested that six hours or 12 hours back before he was 12 weeks old. I firmly believe that puppies should be exposed to everything we're going to ask of them in their adult life by the time they're 12 weeks old. Ford Canine Training and Consulting. Ford Canine has a number of different seminars where I come to you and do courses such as canine cognition testing, detection using cognition, canine integration with tactical operations, the science of E, which is a class based on the understanding of remote callers and how to best utilize them, police canine decoy training, or if you need me to come out and consult or do certifications under CNCA and PCA, National Police Canine Association, or even California Post. If you need any of these and more, go to my website, www.fordfordk9.com. On my website are a number of different classes and formats as well as the ability to contact me and schedule phone or video consulting with or about your canine or your canine program. That phone number is 702-706-DOGS, D-O-G-S. Contact me either by email, Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-Number9.com, to schedule an appointment or a seminar, and I look forward to hearing from you. Georgia Police Canine Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to help canine units. They do this by sometimes providing equipment that might be needed for a canine unit. Maybe it's training, finding a seminar that they fund to get a unit exposure to some training needs that they don't get normally through the routine monthly training. They also provide funds for retired canines who no longer have the support from their agency for the care as they get older. Georgia Police Canine Foundation is here for you, but they're also looking for donations to help this great mission and to help canine programs from around the United States. So if you're looking to help, you want to make a donation, go to www.gapoliceknumber9foundation.org. Again, that website is www.gapoliceknumber9foundation.org. Are you a canine handler in the West or Northwest United States? and you're looking for a different or a new canine conference to go to, then I would look at the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference. This is gonna be held May 18th to the 22nd in Walla Walla, Washington. 
I have been at the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference now uh, more than a few times, and it is a conference where you get classroom as well as multiple working dog stations uh, throughout those days. Um, it keeps you busy. You're not just sitting in a classroom. If you are a person who says, okay, I want some classroom, but then I want to go out and actually uh, apply some of the things that the instructors talk about, then the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference is a great one to attend. Uh, last year, they had the NYPD Transit Bureau Bomb Dog teams there. Uh, the instructors and the admin from that program put on a excellent class. Then they went out and did scenarios from lessons learned that they've been through with the NYPD. It was uh, very eye-opening to say the least. Um, this conference is for narcotic and explosive detection dog handlers to include firearms detection dog handlers. For information to sign up and register, go to pnwk9.org. That is P as in Paul, N as in November, W as in whiskey, K as in kilo, 9, the number 9, .org. So pnwk9.org. Uh, sign up for the conference. Um, again, those dates are May 18th to the 22nd, and it's going to be in Walla Walla, Washington. Are you looking for a good three-day or a weekend-type seminar? Then check out the Sniff and Bite Seminars. Sniff and Bite Seminars are ones where we spend a day and a half doing detection and a day and a half doing bite work slash patrol work, depending on what you do. So whether you're a civilian that does sport or you are a law enforcement officer working your dog as a either dual purpose dog or even single purpose dog, check out the Sniff and Bite Seminars. I just conducted one uh, a few weeks ago in Ocala, Florida with Carlos Ramirez. And everybody that went through that seminar was challenged in one way or another, whether it be detection or on the patrol side of things, the bite work side of things. Uh, a few of the officers got to kind of see some uh, levels of decoy resistance that they had not encountered probably ever. Every sniff and bite seminar is designed to challenge you, but also enhance your education as to the hows and the whys. And then we go out and actually do it. The next Sniff and Bite Seminar is going to be held here in Las Vegas at Silver State Canine. Carlos Ramirez is going to come to Las Vegas. We are going to do our three-day seminar here, and we're going to add a new component. We are going to add some decoy training and education. So if you want to step up your game as a decoy, then make sure you show up for the Sniff and Bite Seminar in Las Vegas. Detection-wise, we are going to push some limits there as well. You have my playground at Set City, Las Vegas, with all the tools I have at my home turf. So if you want to come and push yourself detection-wise, make sure you sign up for that seminar. The dates for that seminar, February 28th, 29th, and March 1st. Go to SilverStateCanine.com, go to the calendar, go to those dates, click on that, and register. The next Sniff and Bite seminar will be held in Tennessee with Justin Rigney. I will go out there. That'll be held in May. Go to canineservicesunlimited.com. Contact Justin to sign up for that one. On a side note, if you do not know Carlos Ramirez, Carlos Ramirez is a fantastic trainer and an excellent decoy. If you get a chance, go check out his website, carlosramirezk9.com. 
That's Ramirez spelled R-A-M-I-R-E-Z and then K9.com. So Carlos Ramirez K9.com. Go check him out and I'll put a link in the show notes. That is a profound statement and a key to a process for us uh, as vendors or breeders here in the States to have successful working dogs. And, and like you said, at the end of the time, it's six hours of investment, which is minor when you look at it. But the dividends that it pays off is enormous. It's In some cases, hard to even calculate what it could do. I don't know of any other six hours you can put in a dog <laughs> that will have as great an impact as that six hours of socialization. Now, if I honestly believe that we're seeing a stunted animal when they don't get that socialization as a puppy. And, and people love to do things with puppies. Um, you know, so you, again, if you're in this in, in a business standpoint as a breeder or a vendor, this is your livelihood. Why would you not uh, invest in this? Now, I think obviously many don't get this information, so they don't know um, the power behind something of, of that nature. Um, so, yeah, the, a big thing. So taking that forward, so now we're let's say we're twelve weeks and and going to twelve to twenty maybe. What what are some other important things that you've learned or read about or through your experience uh, takes us to that next to that four month old level or so? Or sorry, a little more than that, five months old. Well, I I train my puppy daily, um, and when I first started experimenting with training puppies. I tried to train them the way I trained old, older dogs at the mm-hmm. time. And I was doing a little more compulsion work and not as much. I didn't train and drive. Yeah. And I didn't use as much positive reinforcement. And I found that you can't train puppies like you train adult dogs. When I changed through an experience with a hawk, I changed and started training and drive. I started using markers. I used a lot more positive reinforcement. And not that I didn't reward them before, but it just training and drive is mm-hmm. a different picture mm-hmm. than training mechanically. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it did more mechanical training than, than compulsion, but I, I train and drive. It turns out if you figure out how to train puppies, you can train adult dogs the way you train puppies. Oh, yeah. But you can't train puppies the way you train Correct. adult dogs. So, um I just think that just gradually expose and experience and pull them out. Now, I will say that not every puppy I've trained has, you know, I mean, they don't all turn out to be wonderful, but I think they're the best puppy they could be mm-hmm. when he's, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think they're all better for the early experience. And heck, I've got him. He's mine. He's yeah. in the house. I want to yeah. spend that time with him. What does your training entail during that time? When you say you take your dog out and train, what are some of the things that you go do? With, with uh, puppies, I have kind of a little pattern that I do. In the morning, I get up in the house. I'd like to wake up before everyone else. It's hard to do. My wife's an early riser. <laughs> it's hard to do. But if, if I have my druthers with my puppy, I get up in the morning and I air the pup. And then I have... I, I start different sessions with my puppies. I okay. do very short sessions. I get up and I air the puppy, and then I, I do a little obedience session with food. Mm-hmm. I want to teach the dog to sit, to flip left and right, to down. 
I teach my puppies to cast onto a pallet for a target mm -hmm. because as soon as they'll cast onto the pallet, by cast, I mean give a hand signal. Yep. And now I use verbal signals to go onto the pallet, mm -hmm. but left and right onto the pallet. I teach my puppies to target, run out to a target. There's a, uh, so I do this in little stages. Each session I ask for a little more. I don't practice anything very long. I'm asking for a little bit more all the time. But I do a session of active work and then kind of control work. I do one session I'm using food to reinforce. The next session I do maybe with retrieve. The next session I try to pay with tug. Okay. So I want to teach my puppy to be able to switch rewards, food, tug, retrieve. If I can, I, it's ideal that they would accept them all. Mm -hmm. Now, when he's grown, I want one that prefers the tug and the retrieve. Sure. But I'd love to be able to switch them back and forth. I teach my puppies to go away from me for reward. And when I teach them to go away from me, they, they come back very quickly. Sure. I pay them on the return. The best recalls I've ever had on puppies is when I started teaching them to go away. Mm -hmm. And so they target to a... I put a target out with a food treat, back up, let them go. They run to it. So they learn to target. That's something I need in my dogs, to pick out a target at a distance and go to it. I teach them to cast left and right to go to a little pallet um, because I need that for directional work. Mm -hmm. I teach them some obedience work, and then I would be doing some. I take them in the fields in the afternoon, expose them to the fields, to the water. If it's my own personal dog, I'm going to be play retrieving. I, if it's summer... I take them swimming right away. Oh, okay. I want them swimming and yep. retrieving. And uh, I teach my dogs typically field work because I enjoy it and some tactical work. Okay. Yeah, because you, you do a unique thing too where you have dogs that you've done with the communities I've worked in with special operations where we've uh, radio control and things like that, which is a, a very useful tool when it works well. Um, and that, all that you said, goes back to the directional work, that foundation of going out, left, right, etc. So, you know, you've raised your dogs, you've started off with that odor imprinting, uh, you then go into keeping them mentally active, stimulated, and teaching, um, let's say, behaviors or requirements that they're going to need going forward as they get older. Um, when you do this with your litters, what would you say... Um, an average number is that works out for you when you're you've trained you trained uh, your different pups. Well, I th I think uh, typically I only keep one puppy from a litter. Sure, for yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I only keep one pup from a litter, and I suspect if you look at a whole, for most of my breeding was for from field trial stock and for retriever field trials, mm -hmm. and. I think as a whole, very low percentage of them work out to be field champions, mm -hmm. combination of things. Mm -hmm. The dogs have to be wonderful. They have to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. They have to have some pretty special trainers. Um, but I'm going to say that somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% or higher would do well for hunting dogs. Mm -hmm. And the hunt test program where it's mm -hmm. not a competitive title. Sure. Um, and I've never... Worked, I've never raised one that didn't work out well for doing some detection work and some hunt test work in hunting. So you would go based on your experience if we were you know, doing litters, you know, starting a program when our goal is to raise uh, dogs for detection work, 
um, we would have a significant number of dogs that could do jobs in detection. Uh, some may be more prone to, let's say, bomb work or a stronger uh, level of environment uh, than others. But you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not like it's you only get, you're only going to get two, so therefore the whole rest is just a wasted litter. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I, I don't believe that at all. Mm-hmm. I think a very high percentage of them would work well. Now, you have to be selecting from parents. Mm-hmm. There has to be some selection in the parents. It's not just this is a Labrador <laughs> or this is a Malinois. I got uh-huh. papers. He's yeah, a Malinois. Yeah. So let's breed him. You know, there has to be selection for that, for the capable, mm-hmm. for the talents that you need in the adult dog. Yeah. There has to be some kind of selection. And, and I look at individuals like you and Mike Suttle and some of the other ones that have been very successful at breeding over and over again. And like you said, it starts with the right genetics that you're picking uh, to have as a working dog or to produce working dogs. Uh, and then raising them uh, in the process that we're discussing. Um, and again, it, we will have what we're looking for, but... So often I hear from people all the reasons why it can't work. And what I'm loving about the conversation is we're discussing how it can work. And nothing that we're talking about is super expensive or requires a ton of financial investment per se. And I'm going into this with you are one of the best at coming up with devices when it comes to training detection dogs that are so inexpensive. So many people have seen the elbow pipe PVC things, and that was something that you came up with years ago, which you should have trademarked at some point, because <laughs> it's been so used, including myself and others. Um, talk a little bit about you know you, you, some of the tools that you've used that are handmade that help you with detection dogs. So from the pipes to the wheels, I'll let you kind of go on with some of the things that you use and why you use them. Sure. The... Again, the, the scent tubes that we use, I use the original ones. I was walking in the island lows trying to figure out something that I can uh, use to keep my dog from getting to the target odor and keep my dog from getting to the distractions. And the toilet flange with a test cap and a clean out that screwed in mm-hmm. and cut out. I had to drill some holes, but it served that purpose. With the elbow pipe, I, he had a clear criteria. His face could go in there. I know when he's in odor, if his face is in that tube, I know mm-hmm. he's in odor, and I could feed him through the back, so it worked well. Uh, the, the plastic skirt with the holes in it we talked about, mm-hmm. I did develop, a, develop and patent a food pan oh, okay. that is pressurized chamber underneath with mm. the mound in the center, and it blows air out over top of the food. Okay. So, again, the puppy engages the odor before he gets to the food and uh i've patented i haven't haven't got haven't found an exact way to manufacture that thing we do i do make them and i use them sure but um it's not on the market just yet okay the carousels the flat carousel that i put boxes on i was working in a project where i was shuffling ray allen boxes Mm -hmm. and I think we were, well, I don't think we were averaging 80 reinforcements a day okay. with six dogs. That's 480 shuffles of <laughs> four Ray Allen boxes. That's a lot of shuffling. Yeah. I only did that once or twice when I made a flat carousel. And I 
$9 Lazy Susan hinge from uh, Amazon mm -hmm. and one piece of plywood, a couple bolts, and we could get a lot of repetitions. Yep. It was less work for me and a lot of repetitions. The more repetitions meant I was getting more dog training in and one guy, some guys were out from one of the SF groups training and uh, we'd seen a couple of different things I worked on and the, and the man said, gosh, I wish I'd have been lazy enough to invent some things too. <laughs> um, now, I, I don't think it's lazy. I think it's maybe efficient. Absolutely, we'll efficiency, efficient. yeah. So when, uh, when I went from the flat carousel with the boxes on it and I needed to, for a testing program I was in, I needed to move set boxes in multiple rooms because of we were preparing for the tests. And we rented up. I was trying to carry 60 Ray Allen boxes around a day, shuffling them from room to room. Yeah. I thought, well, this is crazy. Yeah. And I didn't invent scent wheels, of course, but we started making, we handmade some scent wheels. I mm -hmm. said, how can we do this? What can we do? And we ended up making a pretty nice little scent wheel that we did patent some, the, uh, the spinner hub. There's a locking spinner hub. Oh, okay. You can pull one pin and raise it up and down. Oh, nice. You can pull another pin to spin it, and or you could drop the pin in and lock it in place. And the the scent wheel has a nice receptacle receiver on the end for the scent cans that we were using. Mm -hmm. And the first ones, I mean, we cut by hand, and I had a shop aluminum aluminum weld the the an X piece for me. Okay. And we're in about the sixth generation of those now, and they're made by a production shop for me. We sell them, but a great time saver. Oh, yeah. Because you can, I can pick up a top and carry that, and you're moving 12-cent choices instead of 12 Ray Allen cans. Yeah. And you just pull the little, uh, it's called a dredge, the uh -huh. stainless steel screw top can. Uh -huh. uh, it's from a... Websterant store. Yep. And uh, and for the listeners, it's basically like a shaker for putting out like Parmesan cheese on your thing, exactly or, what it is. or or if you're a baker, uh, putting powdered sugar all over your your cake or what have you. That's exactly what it is, and they call it a dredge. And I don't know why they call it that. That's but, interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's the ten ounce dredge, and it's made from stainless steel. You can screw the top on. It has holes in it. It keeps the dog from encountering the touching the odor. Specifically engaging the the substance the substance yeah. but they can smell it and they can't get to the distractions and then that's it runs through the dishwasher very easy so it's easy to clean yeah. less work to maneuver and it's safe and again I could get more reps oh yeah no and, and uh, it's it's a highly useful tool and, and I'll ask you the question that I asked him in your class today was uh, when you have a circle like that and you spin it there is a pattern that's there so like when you and I talked earlier it was like okay so in my scent wheel would be shoe polish, hot dog, uh, pieces of dog toy, then target odor. So no matter how the wheel goes around, the pattern would be the same. And you gave me some in interesting information where there was actually testing done uh, because others thought the same thing and brought it up. Um, there's two things I looked at. One, I'll let you do that story, talk about that. The other part was the other wheel that you created with multiple levels that definitely reduces that. So go ahead and tell you tell the audience kind of what um, how the scientist ended up finding out that it still even though there was a pattern it didn't really make a difference. Well, I I do think it can be a problem as you said if you stayed on it for a long time. True. 
Uh, and there's several things we do to defeat that. One, when I get odor, good odor recognition and my dog begins to pause on odor, I go from the flat carousels to the, the scent wheel. Mm-hmm. And when they know the odor well and they'll pause a little bit, I, I introduce blanks where there are some wheels have odor, some don't. Yeah, huge, important factor right there. And we use the wheels to help us train blind. We have multiple handlers, and we, we use a random number generator to decide which wheel will contain odor and which position the wheel, the odor will be in mm-hmm. on the, the wheel. So now when we start running multiple wheels like that, we get multiple Five wheels run twice is 10 wheels for the day, and uh, you can do it more if you want, but the each wheel is laid out different. Mm-hmm. So they have one exposure to the wheel, whether they get paid or not. The mm-hmm. next wheel, it's not the same order for distractions, not the same distractions and not the same order. Yeah. So that defeats it. Yep. Um, but there was, a pro- there was a project we were working on where I had reported to my employers that we had target odor recognition and they didn't think we did that early into the program so they came and they spent a couple days and they were trying to decide trying to figure out how the dogs were cheating the system (laughs) they said well maybe it's the position as you suggested they're just learning the order Mm -hmm. so they would mix the order up after everyone dogs did pretty well so then they said well maybe it's the position on the wheel so they moved it then they said well maybe there's something about the target box so we set multiple targets in multiple boxes and every time the dog hit the wheel we swapped out the box so okay. that there was a and swapped out other boxes so mm-hmm. it wasn't just find a new box mm-hmm. um, then uh, they were turning it da, 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 da. three days they tried a lot of manipulations at the end of three days they said well the dog's no target odor so <laughs> they believe too that they were learning the pattern sure and it is possible yeah they're very clever well like you you, you bring up the point if you're only using one wheel and you have the same odors on there and distractions it's it, it's easy to create that learning of a pattern but you defeat that by having a multiple wheels into the constant, you know, or the ability to change pattern as needed, but randomizing it by um, outside of human thought. So having, so like you said, you have two wheels. Each wheel has 12 spots on it. You use a random uh, number generator that tells you, pulls up a number for you. You use that number. That's where the hot spot is. And then you can use the same game, but put distractor odors out based on those numbers. And it reduces uh, the likelihood of a pattern that we will create as a human because we are pattern oriented. Yes. So, and, and we have our bias and we have our thought, you know, I, I loved it when I got to spend time with Abby Schoen from Holland and um, she talked about how most common when we do line, like a, a, a line of items, yep, we always put it in the fifth spot or the sometimes even the third spot, but we very rarely put it at spot one. Uh, than anywhere else so she created rolling the dice uh to kind of randomize the pattern in which you put it out so at the end of the day being random is a very important factor when we do detection which is why uh, i i play that game i call it detection roulette where i let handlers roll dice and they and it picks their area for them you know i don't pick it they roll it's their fate they find out and some of those areas have no odor in them and some every areas have odor in them and at the end of the day 
they pick their fate. There's it's random. Uh, it, it reduces patterns. Um, and into that, I'll use this as a jumping point to the next thing that you're starting to get more involved in and learn more about, which is cognition with dogs. You you mentioned how your uh, your son's going is taking a class with Brian Hare or from Brian Hare. Um, you've read his book. How have you uh, seen this kind of aspect really start to grow within our industry and how important it is learning cognition to what we do? Well, I'm just experimenting and looking and researching myself. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how it's impacting yet. I, it's very important that we understand how animals learn and how we can take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, any, any information that I can gain that helps me do a better job, yeah. I'm interested in. Yep. So I'm researching. Yeah. And that's what motivated me for it was uh, as I wanted to get better at my job. And like we spoke uh, is the career field I was in at the time with special forces. I didn't want to uh, run the risk of making a mistake or, or knowing that my training wasn't good enough. And by uh, learning cognition, it helped me. Uh, have a better understanding of each individual dog in front of me. And by knowing that dog better, I was better able to create a training plan specifically for that dog, which then made me more efficient in my what I was doing, what I was teaching, and the time I was teaching it in. So, um, yeah, you're right. As you, as you get to go into it, it's going to hit those key points that you mentioned, which is, how can you be better at efficiency and communication to the dog? And then, uh, uh, you know, applying your training to get the most out of the dog based on that individual dog's capabilities, which is big. Yeah. So you mentioned learning patterns in target placement and learning patterns in the sequence or order of odors on a wheel. The The animals, dogs in particular, are very adept at reading human beings. And for me, when thinking of the Clever Hans phenomenon, Mm -hmm. the scary thing is not that people were fooled by it. Mm -hmm. The scary thing is the trainer was fooled by it. Yeah. He wasn't trying to trick anyone. Mm -mm. He honestly believed his horse could do those things. Mm -hmm. And that's scary. Oh, yeah. And there's many handlers who work dogs today believe or have beliefs about what their dogs can do. Um, and a lot of it might not be accurate and it's based off of what they do or they believe or their actions that cause something. And, and that's a big deal. We, you know, I, and I, I asked this question right here as I wrap it up is science has invaded our world, dog world more and more. How have you seen science really develop within our dog community over the past number of years? Well, uh, I have been fortunate enough recently to do some work for scientists, training programs, and people trying to challenge and figure out what dogs can do and how we can train them better. And the scientific rigor that they bring is challenging. Uh, I've learned a lot from them about how do we how do we handle target material? Mm-hmm. How do you transport it? How do you place it? How do you handle it? Um, how do you store it? How do you store it? Uh, you know the the rigor that they bring that that the demand for data. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to paint a rosy picture. 
I go and train, and if you know, if if I'm not careful, mm-hmm. I go and train, and my dog has two misses, three bad alerts. He gets one good find, and I, at the end of the day, I remember, you know, he's really coming along. At that that last alert he had today, really looked good. But if I look back, the whole day wasn't as wonderful as that one that I choose to remember. Yeah. Now we cannot improve if we don't record somehow record data Mm -hmm. and it's it was frustrating to first to work with with scientists to record data Mm -hmm. and um and the rigor that they asked of me was frustrating some but um i learned a lot my dogs are better i'm a better trainer and there are new ways to record data in detection dogs and some new ways coming out. Oh, yeah. No, and you kind of share one in your lecture, which I really liked. He kind of has an automated now wheel that spins automatically. There's a infrared sensor that the dog breaks no matter what the device is, you know, no matter what spot it is. So whether it's non-target, it registers if the dog stuck his nose there or not. And then when the dog goes into target, it will calculate the time the dog has stayed there focused before it actually will release the reward or give the, the marker and then release the reward. So as a dog's going, let's say, from uh, uh, you know can to can to can, when it gets to the can that's got the odor, it has to, of course, hold that position for a set determined amount of time. And then the beep happens and the dog can get the reward. And that's huge. I, I've seen a fancy version of that as well. Um, and like you said, what I loved about when you brought that up on the lecture was you wanted to be able to make sure that you logged all the times the dog sniffed all the non-target material. And that was huge because we always are good about documenting when we find target, but we don't usually do really well at collecting the data on non-target. It's important. Absolutely. And, th- and those numbers make a big difference because it helps you understand why the, you know, what non-target might the dog stay lingering at compared to another one. Uh, how long do they stay doing it? Uh, what truly is a, a, a non-productive indication compared to the actual indication? Because sometimes they pause just to smell something and they move on. And like you said, the machine knows this is only X amount. This is just an investigation sniff, not an actual indication. And that's huge uh, because the human might go, oh, it's indicating. And it's really not. It's just sniffing that spot a little bit longer to kind of go, oh, wait, this odor. Okay, move on. So, no, great, great, great information. So how do people reach out to you? Um, how do they get a hold of you? What's the, the easiest way to find Pat Nolan and ask him questions? <laughs> hey, thanks for asking. PatNolan.com. Pretty easy, right? Here we go. Yeah, you don't make it complicated. You know, <laughs> one thing I've learned in, in business is make sure they know how to get a hold of you and make sure they know how to pay you. There we go. <laughs> so they, uh, you, know, you don't need to overcomplicate things. PatNolan.com. I'll put the, show, or put the website in the show notes. Uh, and I might even share some of the, the, the literature that you mentioned. Sure. If you have it, I'll put some of that in the show notes for those that want to read about things. Uh, what Pat and his wife also do is webinars. Uh, just like I do, he's got his. You, you kind of explain those a little bit. What your wife does? What some of the stuff that she does? My wife Connie Cleveland is a very talented obedience trainer and instructor. She's made ten obedience trial champions, and she's a good retriever. Tra- I mean, a wonderful retriever trainer. There, I believe there have been five dogs that have both an obedience trial champion 
and a retriever trial champion title on them. Mm-hmm. My wife trained four of the five. Yeah. And uh, she's a very talented trainer and a good instructor. She's taught lessons for 30 years and lots of classes, lots of people, lots of students. And she's been recently doing more and more coaching online with mastermind groups. And she has her whole system now, the approach, soup to nuts, starts to finish. Mm-hmm training obedience competition dogs mm-hmm. online on at the obedience road obedience road nice no and that as we mentioned getting information out to people is important and technology is a way that's doing it for us through the webinar so uh it's a great resource for those of you guys to go look it up go do it and I'll, I'll leave on this one because me and you uh share this very uh passionately the power of the marker how strong is that? And, and uh, the, what do you say to people that go, well, your dog left odor in order to get reward? As, as brief as you, you can, I know you get, your time's been limited, but uh, the, how powerful is a marker in, tra- in detection training? The timing is so important. You were, you were asking about science or you, you, the, the input of science. Mm-hmm. They show, they can do a study and show if you're going to give, let's say, not that you would, but you give a marshmallow, they can test the animal and see how much work he will put out for a marshmallow. If you deliver the marshmallow within one second of the behavior that you're trying to reinforce, he will do X amount of work. If you deliver the marshmallow two seconds after the work, he will X minus something. Three seconds, it's X minus more. So very short little gaps in time reduces the amount of work and effort the animal will do for the reward. They can chart it, graph it, show it, mm-hmm. prove it, mm-hmm. the delayed reinforcement gradient. Mm-hmm. With the marker, there is no delay in reinforcement unless you don't use your marker. Yeah, It delivers reinforcement right at the odor. I had some fellas come from another country spend a couple of days to see what we were doing. They knew me some from the internet and they mm-hmm. came and they watched and we were working a number of detection dogs on a project. And the first dog we ran, they said, Oh, you can't pay them away from motor. The dogs will leave. <laughs> I said, well, they don't. Uh-huh. And so we talked a little bit. They stayed for three days. And at the end of three days, we'd run six dogs all day long for three days. And they said, again, I, we just don't understand. You can't pay them back here. They won't, they'll, I said, did you see any dog in six days of work leave odor before we marked it? Well, no, but they will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember the same argument. Yeah. And, I, and I tell them that's because it's called bad training, not because of the marker. Uh, no. So, and that, I hate to relate that. It sounds like a brag. but No, no, it, it, it's true. <laughs> and I, I've had the exact same challenges, which is why I wanted you to share it, because um, you know it's a common fear that's misplaced on the marker system because like in any training system there's people that may not apply it correctly and you will see dogs who leave odor because they anticipate the handler doing that they are the the trainer isn't effectively communicating that the behavior needs to hold until i release so 
when it's done properly, which is really easy to do in comparison to the old school way of trying to throw a toy at the or deliver food there. Like you said, the timing is not correct and then creates a deficiency in work. But anyway, and on top of that, I always tell everybody, look, uh, a lot of things work. Um, you know, I don't send my letters on typewriter anymore. <laughs> I use my phone or computer or whatever. So does a typewriter still work? Sure, it works. However, what I use now is more efficient and, and, and delivers efficiency and, and training better. So absolutely other things work. We are talking about science and how science is improving our efficiency and training and enhancing our communication, which is the, the main thing that we need to do. So thank you so much for spending your time. It, it, this has been one of the biggest things I've wanted to do was sit down with you and, and talk. Great fun. I've yeah. had a good time. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. The past couple of days have been a lot of fun just being around each other and, and watching yeah. and, and, like I said, doing things that uh, we had never met but see how well we line up on. So uh, thank you again, and I'll put the information for you guys on the show notes. Um, as usual, any questions, shoot me an email, Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-9.com. And until the next episode, I will talk to you then. Okay, that concludes this episode of K9's Talking Sense. Again, I hope everybody found this interview with Pat Nolan very informative. Pat has a ton of information, offers lots of training. This one was specifically more about the puppy raising, but Pat does amazing things with directionals, uh, controlling and directing dogs from long distances, So check out his website. It'll be in the show notes and feel free to reach out to him. He's always happy to help people. Before the show ends, I want to also cover uh, emails I get. I get emails frequently about canine cognition, uh, about coming out and doing seminars in your area on the cognitive testing. Uh, People have really found it interesting learning things about their dog, if it's right or left brain dominant. Uh, Is their dog strong in memory? Is their dog stronger at making inferences? Things like that. We are also expanding to puppy cognition testing. And uh, Dr. Evan McLean and Emily Cohen, formerly Emily Bray, before she got married, have spent an extensive amount of time now, a number of years, doing cognitive testing on puppies and have had great success at doing these cognitive tests that help give information about the dog's propensity to possibly be a working dog. And what we see in these cognitive tests with puppies helping us bring a dog closer or be better about how we raise that dog to become a working dog, expanding on what we see in those cognitive tests. So if you are interested, uh, reach out to me, the normal email, Cameron at FordK9.com, and uh, I can try to set up a seminar in your area or stay tuned to the Silver State Canine website because there will be various seminars here in Las Vegas where I'm doing the same uh, exact classes but here in Las Vegas. So the two versions are I can come to you or if you go to the Silver State Canine website, you go to the calendar, you'll see whenever we're offering these locally in Las Vegas. So also if you have uh, interest 
the Canines Talking Sense webinars have kicked off. The first one happened recently with uh, Dr. Nathan Hall. Part two will be uh, out on February 25th, so right about the airing of this podcast itself. If you miss episode one or episode two of the webinar with Nathan Hall, email me. I can give you instructions on how to receive the copy of that episode. Uh, I'll give you the payment instruction, and then from there, I confirm that you've paid for the episode, and then I can send you the recorded version of that episode. The Canines Talking Sense webinars will be uh, increasing. Nathan has four parts for his webinar. I am also going to be bringing on Dr. Michelle Mon. Those of you guys remember her interview on Canines Talking Sense. Uh, we discussed many things about odor containment and odor contamination. So I have spoken to her, and we are lining up dates to do a multiple series of webinars with her as well, covering those topics. If you guys may remember, she is the one that has the TADS device, the training aid delivery system, which is the unique container that can off-gas odor but protect the substance from being contaminated from other odors. So be on the lookout on all my social media feeds, which is at Cameron Ford Canine, whether it be Facebook or Instagram. I'll be posting these webinars Uh, a week ahead of time before they air. You do not have to listen to them live. As long as you sign up prior to the show airing live, you will automatically receive the email link to the show that was recorded. If you have any questions, feel free, email me. And as you guys know, I always do my best to get back to every email that comes my way. So one more time, that email address is Cameron at Ford K number nine.com Cameron at Ford K nine.com. And until the next episode, which will be with my good friend, Tim Baird, and we will continue this puppy discussion. That one is going to be a fun one. So until then on canines talking sense, it's okay to be nosy.